You are tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Radio Maria's show, Salvation is from the Jews, the show that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or, seen the other way around, the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of Judaism in the Catholic Church. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that I very often have, as a guest on the show, another grateful Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church, or sometimes I just speak on a topic of interest that's related to the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic faith. But today I'd like to do something a little bit different. Uh, Very recently, I spoke at a conference in Colorado Springs, Colorado, And I gave a presentation which in itself provides, I believe, a pretty good summary of the role of Judaism in salvation history from a Catholic perspective. So what I would like to do today is present that talk as the content of today's show. Now, if you would like to listen to any of the previous shows, you can easily do so by listening to them online or downloading them from either the Radio Maria website, radiomaria.us, or my own website, salvationisfromthejews.com. Now, let's go to the Colorado Springs Conference, where I speak on the role of Judaism in salvation history. Hi, it's, it's great to be back here, and it's, it's great to see all of you. Uh, this isn't where I was planning to start, but since Maddie began with some beautiful words about the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, I want to begin someplace kind of that I left off yesterday when I gave my witness testimony. Um, those of you who were here yesterday know that the key element of my witness testimony was, was an experience of the Blessed Virgin Mary when, when she uh, appeared to me while I was asleep and um, offered to answer any questions I might have for her. And as I mentioned yesterday, one of the questions that I asked her in a desire to honor her appropriately, was what title you like best for yourself. And she answered, I am the beloved daughter of the Father, mother of the Son, and spouse of the Spirit. Now, this morning when I was at my book table, I'll begin with a commercial introduction then. I do have a book table outside, and after my talk and stuff, I have my books out there for to sell. A woman came by and said she remembered the beloved daughter of the Father, and she remembered the mother of the Son, but what was the third title that Mary liked, and I repeat it, it was the spouse of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, that is a role that she has that we don't think of as much of as the other two roles, especially not as the Mother of God role. But I did just want to say that, um, that it's really worth dwelling on what it means that she's the spouse of the Holy Spirit, because we all know that um, Jesus was conceived in her womb by a spousal union union between the Holy Spirit and the Blessed Virgin Mary. It was a spousal union. It was entering into eternal marriage. Uh, By Jewish law, by the way, uh, spousal relations are what consummate a marriage. They are what bring about a marriage. The the ceremony and everything is actually irrelevant. And at an Orthodox Jewish wedding, um, in the course of the wedding ceremony, the married couple consummate the union 
and that is the occasion of the celebration because that's when the marriage actually takes place. When the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and, and Jesus was conceived in her womb, that they entered into an eternal spousal union. And it's because of that eternal spousal union between the Holy Spirit and the Blessed Virgin Mary, in fact, that all graces that flow to mankind flow through the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'll just read a couple of quotes. Uh, Pope Leo XIII, I mean, there are handfuls and handfuls and handfuls of popes and saints who have said the same thing, but the quote I have in front of me is from Pope Leo XIII. Nothing of all of the immense treasury of grace that the Lord accumulated is imparted to us except through Mary. And, uh, and then let me read a quote from uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe, who's actually the primary, probably the primary theologian of the Blessed Virgin Mary as a spouse of the Holy Spirit. So let me read a direct quote from his. The third person of the Most Holy Trinity never took flesh. Still, our human word spouse is far too weak to express the reality of the relationship between the Immaculate Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit. We can affirm that she is, in a certain sense, the, quote, incarnation, close quote, of the Holy Spirit. Their union is so inexpressible, so perfect, that the Holy Spirit acts only by the Immaculata, his spouse. This is why she is the mediatrix of all graces given by the Holy Spirit. St. Maximilian Kolbe referred to the Blessed Virgin Mary as the quasi-incarnation of the Holy Spirit, not a true incarnation like Jesus was of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, uh, one person with two natures. The, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Holy Spirit are clearly two persons with two nations. Two natures, so it's not a true incarnation, but it's it's closer to an incarnation than there's any other example of in salvation history. That makes sense. So that was a kind of flashback to yesterday, but I couldn't let that introduction go by without wanting to add that. Um, so let me now jump to what I had kind of meant to talk about today. Yesterday, when I talked about my journey, so to speak, from uh, you know, being Jewish to, to being Catholic, I talked about how it didn't seem to me like a conversion at all, that I didn't think I had changed anything at all. I didn't give up any of my uh, Jewish beliefs except who Jesus was. And I just went from being a Jew who was wrong about who Jesus was to being a Jew who was right about who Jesus was. That is the long-promised Jewish Messiah. And the entire point of Judaism was, almost the entire point of Judaism, was to bring about the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, who the Jews thought of as their Messiah, in order to, when he incarnated and then lived and suffered and died, would open up the privileged relationship between God and man, which had been given to the Jews for that special role to all of mankind through faith in Christ and through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. So let me... Um, uh, just quickly give the story, the story of salvation history from the beginning, but really quickly, um, because it's all one story, and that's the picture that I want to paint. The story of salvation history from the Garden of Eden to the second coming when everything's wrapped up, it's all one story, it's all one tapestry, it's all one you know, beautiful movie from beginning to end, and it's just got two scenes. The first scene is preparing for the incarnation, and the second scene is after the incarnation happened, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So the story begins at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When God created man, he created him to live in a state of uninterrupted bliss and intimacy with God from his creation for all eternity. 
when man chose to sin, that initial perfect relationship between God and man was shattered. But at that very moment, God knew that at some point in the future, he would not only restore man to that original blessed state, but actually elevate him to a far higher state through the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity as a man at a future point in time. If the second person of the Most Holy Trinity was going to incarnate as a man at some point in time, it would be at a particular point in time, in a particular place in the world, among a particular people, and of course, actually even in the womb of a particular virgin, and of course, that people would have to be prepared. They would have to be separated out from all of the other people wandering the face of the earth. They would have to be given a tremendous amount of divine revelation over centuries and centuries, first of all, to know about the one true uncreated creator God, to know about the creation of man, to know about the fall of man, the seriousness of sin, the need for redemption, the future coming of a redeemer. They would be, have to be given enough divine revelation to be able to identify the redeemer when he came. And they would have to be given enough of a foundation in theology to make sense of what was happening and to spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth, to propagate this religion throughout the world once the Messiah did come. And that's what the Jews were. They were the people chosen, one could say at random, from all the people on the earth for this one special role, which was undoubtedly the most exalted, most privileged, most special role ever given to a single ethnic people to quite literally enable the redemption of all mankind to come about, to, to bring redemption to all mankind, salvation to all mankind, through the incarnation of God as man, as the Jewish Messiah. Now, if they were going to do this, if they were going to receive this divine revelation over two millennia in order to prepare for the incarnation, they would have to be separated out and kept separate for those 2,000 years, um, in order to kind of uh, provide this environment to receive the divine revelation and to receive the Messiah. And, and for that reason, one can imagine they were given a lot of characteristics that we see in the Old Testament, both the laws which kept them from intermingling with other people and perhaps even in their character which kept them from intermingling with other people. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, uh, well, I'm not saying it. Jesus said it and St. Stephen said it. You, are, you were always a stiff-necked and stubborn people, right? That's, that's in the New Testament. If they were, a, and if they are, mea culpa, a stiff-necked and stubborn people, maybe it isn't just coincidence and maybe it's not just their fault. Maybe God had to make them a stiff-necked and stubborn people so they would stay separate for 2,000 years, right, for this role they were given. Now, the... Um, uh, so one can look at some of the characteristics of Jews and one can look at some of the laws in the Old Testament as perhaps being vehicles that God provided to keep the Jews separate for those 2,000 years. Then one can ask, why did God choose the Jews for this most important role he ever gave to any single ethnic group? Now, there are at least three answers to that. One is he had to choose somebody, and whoever he chose, we'd now be saying, why on earth did he choose them? Um, another reason that we know as Catholics is that God always seems to choose the most insignificant and worthless people for his special roles, just so that when God acts through them, it's obvious to everyone, including them, that it's not because they're special, but it's a sovereign act of God. And there are lots of examples of this, of course, when Mary appeared to Bernadette at Lourdes. Um, uh, Bernadette said that she was the most ignorant of creatures, and Mary chose her to appear to. Uh, the uh, shepherd children at Fatima who Mary appeared to were, you know, virtually illiterate, 8, 10, and 11 years old. 
And um, when, when Jesus appeared to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque in the Sacred Heart Apparitions, uh, St. Margaret Mary asked Jesus, why me? Why did you choose me for this special favor? And Jesus said, that's very simple. If I could have found anyone else more insignificant and worthless than you, I would have chosen her instead. So that's, that's another one of, that's one of the reasons why God chose the Jews. And by the way, that's explicit in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, verse 3, God compares the Jewish people to, it says they're the most insignificant of people. He compares them to an infant thrown away after birth and left in the afterbirth to die and says, I came along and I lifted you up and I cleaned you of the blood and I clothed you with silk and anointed you with oil and raised you up in beauty and so forth. So he, he explicitly says that it's because they were so insignificant. But there's also a positive reason why God chose the Jews. And that's given in the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And the reason I'm going to go um, at some length through that story, not a whole lot of length, but you know, five or six minutes, is because it's absolutely central to the relationship between Judaism and Catholicism. It's the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. In fact, um, I, have, I have two books on my book table. I am Jewish, right? I'm allowed to sell from time to time. Um, and Salvation is from the Jews. The cover is a picture of Abraham's uh, sacrifice of Isaac, binding of Isaac, and that's no coincidence. So let me tell that story briefly. I think most of you know the story. Uh, it appears in Genesis, um, uh, uh, Genesis 22. Um, so let me read from the passage. Okay, here it is. Um, this is, this is uh, you know, God called Abraham out of um, the land of Ur where he lived as a pagan and said, you know, come to where I tell you and I'll make you the father of a great nation. So Abraham left there. He wandered around. He, he, he and his wife were infertile and they didn't have any children. And so Abraham's waiting and waiting and waiting for the son of the promise through whom he'd been made the father of a great nation. He waits until he's uh, about 100 years old and his wife Sarah is over 90 and long past childbearing when God miraculously gives them a son, Isaac, the son of promise. And as soon as the boy grows up to be a young lad, God turns around and says, okay, now that you've waited all your life 100 years for this child, now I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, without a moment's hesitation, the Hebrew text actually says he rose early in the morning, went to sacrifice his son Isaac as God had asked him. And that's where we'll pick up the story. Uh, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men and his son Isaac, cut the wood for the burnt offering, and went to the place God had told him. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on the shoulders of Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went up the mountain together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, uh, Abraham replied, Here I am. Uh, Isaac said, I see the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together up the mountain. When they came to the place God had told them, Abraham had built, uh, Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the wood, put forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham replied, Here I am. The angel said, 
Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will indeed bless you and will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And then the angel pointed out a ram that was caught in a thicket by its horn and told Abraham to substitute that ram instead of his son Isaac for the sacrifice. And Abraham went ahead and sacrificed that ram. Now, that line, that statement of the angel, uh, because you have done this, by, all, uh, by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, was always understood in Judaism to be the promise of sending the Messiah, the messianic promise. Because Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac, um, God promised to send the Messiah through his descendants. Now that mountain where Abraham took his son Isaac in the days of the Old Testament was called Mount Moriah. 2,000 years later, it had a different name. It was Mount Calvary. They're one and the same mountain. If you go to Jerusalem, you can see the rock on which God, uh, Abraham bound Isaac for the sacrifice. It's inside the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount, and you can walk about 500 yards down the same mountain ridge and come to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher where Jesus was crucified. As, as Abraham laid the wood for his only beloved son's sacrifice on his son's shoulder and led him up the mountain, 2,000 years later, God laid the wood for his only beloved son's sacrifice on his shoulders and led him up the very same mountain. It was Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac that prefigured, foreshadowed, and in some sense, uh, not in some sense, literally, earned the Jews the privilege of having the Messiah come through them and was a picture in advance of the, um, of the crucifixion, of the passion that brought uh, redemption to all of mankind. When uh, Abraham said to his son, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He was speaking prophetically far more deeply than he could ever know because God himself did provide the lamb for the sacrifice, which was his son on the very same mountain. That ram, which was caught by his horn in the thicket and substituted temporarily for, um, for Isaac's sacrifice and then looking forward in future as a kind of substitution in advance for the ultimate lamb of sacrifice, which is Jesus, was the first of the Jewish sacrificial lambs. And every Jewish sacrificial lamb from Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac up until the Last Supper, because the Last Supper was a Passover sacrifice, right, was um, an echo of that lamb that was there to connect Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac with the sacrifice of Jesus. That's, in fact, why the Passion of Christ had to take place on Passover. That's why the first Catholic Mass was a Passover Seder, was because of this mirroring between Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and the crucifixion of Christ. Um, wow, okay, maybe I'll stop there. Um, the... Um, uh, I will stop there, but it shows it shows um, so much about the 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 nature of Judaism, the meaning of Judaism was to foreshadow Christianity was the first phase of Christianity. Um, everything you see in the Old Testament, almost everything you see in the Old Testament, is a symbolic picture in advance, like a prophecy of salvation through Christianity, veiled because God did not reveal 
the, the true scenario to the world yet, but he hid it in pictures in advance. And it was the behavior of the Jews that was then kind of, um, uh, uh, I don't, was, was mirrored, was a foreshadowing in advance, which was mirrored in salvation through Christianity. And I'll just give one more illustration of that, which uh, was very common in the early days of the church, because uh, the church fathers, of course, you, you ought to remember that the, the early Christians were almost all Jews, right? I mean, all of the apostles were Jews. All of the disciples were Jews. The 3,000 who Peter, um, you know, preached to at Pentecost and entered the church were all Jews. Many of the church fathers were Jews. Many of the early popes were Jews. So they very naturally saw um, Christianity, um, you know, as the continuation of Judaism. In fact, the very first church council in, in 51 AD, which is uh, the Council of Jerusalem, which is recounted in, in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 14 or 15, uh, was to resolve the burning, the first burning crisis question in the church um, that threatened to kind of, you know, lead the theology of the church astray. Uh, well, I won't ask that too many people and you don't have microphones, but I would like to ask, does anyone know what question that church council, the first church council was called to resolve. It was to answer the question, are we allowed to let Gentiles into the church or is Christianity only for Jews? Seriously, I'm not making that up. That was the first crisis in the church. The, the way it surfaced, you see in the book of Acts, is of course Jews had to be circumcised in order to be Jewish. So the question was, do we have to make non-Jewish, non-Jews who want to enter the church first become Jews through circumcision, or are we allowed to let Gentiles into the church? So you can see how overwhelmingly Jewish the early church was, so much so that the question was, is it only for Jews? And you can see why they would have made that mistake, because Jesus was a Jew, and uh, all of, as I said, all of the apostles and disciples were Jews. Jesus only preached to Jews. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. The Jews were the ones who were prepared to know about him and receive him. So it was a logical mistake to make. So anyway, in this in this state of mind that the early Christians had, they, uh, let me just go through quickly the story of Exodus as an illustration. Um, you know the story of Exodus, that the Jews were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, God raised up Moses to be their deliverer. Moses went to Pharaoh, performed all these miracles to um, try to convince him to let the Jews leave. Finally, uh, with the 10th miracle, which is the slaying of the firstborn, which should sound familiar to us, the slaying of the firstborn, because that is what we saw in Abraham's um, sacrifice of Isaac, and that's, of course, what we see in, in the crucifixion. But anyway, after the slaying of the firstborn, uh, Moses, uh, Pharaoh lets the Jews leave. They, the Pharaoh sends the army after them because he changes his mind. The Jews cross the Red Sea miraculously. Pharaoh's army is drowned in the sea. The Jews wander through the desert for 40 years. They don't have any food to eat, so God miraculously feeds them with manna from heaven. And finally, they make it to the promised land. This is always seen as a picture of Christianity. The, the Jews' slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt was understood to be a picture of mankind's slavery to Satan, to the power of Satan. The Jews were freed from the power of Pharaoh by passing through the waters of the Red Sea, which was seen as a picture of the Christian who's freed from the power of Satan by passing through the waters of baptism. The, the Jews wandered through the desert for 40 years on their way to the Promised Land, which was understood as a picture of the Christian's passage through this life on the way to the true promised land, which is heaven. And the Jews were miraculously sustained in the desert for 40 years by what? By manna from heaven, which is always seen as a picture of the true manna from heaven, the true miraculously bread from heaven, which is the Eucharist, 
which is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, which sustains us in our journey through this, the desert of this life on the way to the promised land. And I know you believe me, but if you didn't believe me, you know, when you get home or when you leave here, read John 6, because Jesus says this. Jesus says, um, your fathers were fed by manna in the wilderness, but I tell you truly, I am the true bread from heaven. He who eats my body and drinks my blood has eternal life in them and shall not perish, and so forth. Jesus points out that he's the fulfillment of the picture of the manna that fed the Jews going through the wilderness. So that, I guess, is a, that's, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a 15-minute picture of the role of Judaism in leading up into Christianity and into Christianity. But now I want to get to the second part of this talk, which is the role of Judaism in the second coming, which I promised you in, in the title of this talk. So, so given that the Jews were uh, given this incredibly exalted and honored role of bringing about redemption to all mankind through the incarnation of Christ, through the first coming of Christ, we can turn around and ask, did they exhaust their role at that point in time, or do they still have a role to play in this period between the first and second coming of Christ? And so that's what I want to spend the rest of this time talking about. Now, um, in the days of the Church Fathers, actually, this was an open question, and um, you know, they came out on both sides of this question. But we have 2,000 years of history since the first coming of Christ, which aid our understanding in the role of Jews and Judaism in this period between the first and second coming. And we know that, in fact, they do play a mysterious role in this period between the first and second coming of Christ, and that they will have a role to play in the second coming itself. Now, we know this from a number of sources. We know this from Catholic dogma. We know this from Scripture. And we know this from history itself. But let me begin this part of the talk with a quote from Pope Emeritus Benedict. Um, and this is from his book, A God in the World. Um, Although the Jews lived 2,000 years in exile, their religion has not evaporated. This is a phenomenon without parallel in the history of mankind. It is obvious that the development of the world as a whole has a mysterious connection with the development of the Jewish people. The way that this tiny people who no longer have any country, no longer any independent existence, but led their life scattered throughout the world, kept their own identity. The way the Jews are still Jews and still a people, even during the 2,000 years when they had no country, is an absolute riddle. This phenomenon in itself shows us that there's something more than mere historical chance at work. So what Pope Benedict is saying is that the fact that the Jews survived for the last 2,000 years without a country, without a homeland, is without parallel in the history of mankind and shows us divine providence at work. It shows us that they still have some mysterious role to play. We know something about the mysterious role that they have to play also from uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I mentioned this quote yesterday, but paragraph 674 of the New Catechism says, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. This is a dogma. I'll repeat that more slowly. I'm sorry, I'm still a New York Jew. Um, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. In other words, the second coming can't happen until there's a widespread conversion of the Jews. And I'll talk more about this later in the talk, but that's, that is, that's, uh, that's a dogma. There are four signs that will precede the second coming. The great apostasy, a widespread falling away from the faith, the coming, the appearance of the Antichrist, the spreading of the gospel to the four corners of the earth, and the conversion of the Jews. 
Now, um, when we look at the history of the last 2,000 years, uh, the history of the Jews in the last 2,000 years, in order to see clues about what their role in salvation history might still be, we are confronted with the phenomenon of anti-Semitism and the fact that uh, pretty continually for the last 2,000 years, wherever they were in the world, the Jews were the recipients of a kind of, um, I would argue, irrational, exaggerated animosity, hate, and so forth, which, of course, the most dramatic example of is the Holocaust. Now, I, I want to go into the Holocaust a little bit um, uh, because, well, it'll become obvious as I go into it. Um, the, in fact, if you look at the forces that led to the desire to the exterminate the Jews in the Third Reich, um, there were three streams that flowed together into uh, Nazism, into the uh, desire to exterminate the Jews. Those three streams were occultism, eugenics, and sexual depravity. And I'm mentioning those for a couple of reasons. One is because we see the parallel of those three streams today emerging in a very parallel kind of a fashion. But let me just justify my statement. First of all, occultism was absolutely a, a major thrust behind the desire to exterminate the Jews. First of all, Hitler himself was, um, was an active occultist. The chief exorcist of Rome, Father Gabriella Amorth, said, quote, Hitler was without a doubt personally consecrated to Satan. Hitler's first rise to power was an occult society called the Thule Society in Munich. Um, Thule being the Germanic version of the Atlantis myth, you know, that continent in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where people had all these wonderful powers, but that continent sank under the uh, waters of the Atlantic. Um, in the German version of that myth, those people escaped from the island before it sank, and they made it to Europe and, and Asia, and they were the original super race. They had all these powers of mental telepathy and travel and so forth. And if the purity of their bloodlines, and then they intermarried with ordinary people and they lost those superpowers, but if the purity of their bloodlines could be reestablished through selective breeding, they would regain those powers. And that's the origin of the Nazi Superman theology, or whatever you want to call it, which is behind all of their blood purity laws, was to restore the powers of essentially those Atlanteans who were, who they identified, the, the, the Nazis identified as themselves, as the Aryans. So Hitler's first uh, uh, rise to public power or prominence was this Thule Society, was an occult society. The head of the Thule Society was an active occultist named uh, uh, Dietrich Eckhart. And Dietrich Eckhart bragged publicly um, that he initiated Hitler into the secret doctrine opened his centers of vision and gave him the means to communicate with the powers. Initiation is the introduction of demons, essentially, into a person. And then they, they have um, those demons give, I don't know what to call them, but particular faculties to the person, the ability to communicate with the spiritual world. But it isn't the unfallen spiritual world they're communicating with. It's the demonic spiritual world. It's the fallen spiritual world. And that's what he meant when he said, he initiated Hitler into the secret doctrine, opened his centers of vision, and gave him the means to communicate with the powers. Those powers are the powers of hell. That was the, um, basically the occult satanic inspiration behind Hitler's desire to exterminate the Jews. By the way, should someone doubt this, if you, if you get a copy of Mein Kampf, not that I recommend it, but that's, of course, Hitler's autobiography and kind of exposition of his, his doctrine, the last paragraph of Mein Kampf is a dedication of the work to Diedrich Eckhart, to this occultist who initiated him. Um, 
uh, I will not actually, well, very briefly, I guess I will go through the other two streams. Eugenics, um, I, I think most of us know about the eugenics programs in the Third Reich, which in fact the concentration camps and the extermination of the Jews was an element of those eugenics programs. Um, the, um, it's less known that there was a continual flowing back and forth between uh, eugenic scientists, between Margaret Ma Sanger's birth control league and the Third Reich. You know Margaret Sanger's birth control league, that's the predecessor to Planned Parenthood. Um, and in fact, uh, a, um, the director of the primary German eugenics institute, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Genealogy in Munich, and this was the eugenics institute that instituted the program of uh, forced sterilization of inferior people under which 400,000 people were forcibly uh, sterilized and the euthanasia of uh, disabled children under which over a quarter million children at birth were killed. In fact, the, the doctor or the midwife had to check off one of two boxes whether the child should be allowed to live or not. Anyway, the director of the German Eugenics Institute, who was behind all of this, was a, Margaret, was a frequent contributor to Margaret Sanger's birth control review, Dr. Ernst Rudin. And another Margaret Sanger board member, Birth Control League board member, Lothrop Stoddard, was the author of a book called The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy, which came out in 1920 and was the foundation of Hitler's eugenics program and eugenics education in the schools, so much so that Goebbels complained to Hitler how inappropriate it was that a foreigner's a book should be the basic textbook for eugenics in, in Germany, and that foreigner was a Margaret Sanger board member. So, again, I, you, you can see why I'm doing this, right? Because we're living, we're living in a culture which has too many echoes of the same streams that led to Nazi Germany. Um, and the third, the third leg of this tripod is, um, is sexual depravity. You are listening to Salvationists from the Jews on Radio Maria. This is Roy Shoman, and I am playing the recording of a conference that I gave recently in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I am breaking the recording at this point to make this announcement and also to let you know that I am omitting the part of the talk that spoke explicitly about the role of sexual depravity in the Third Reich to make this broadcast more family-friendly. Now we'll return to the talk given at the conference. But my point is basically, and I'm sorry this was a bit of a, seems like a bit of a digression, but my point is the following. If these three streams, which obviously all individually came straight from hell, eugenics and occultism and sexual depravity, came straight from hell, why should hell have such an interest in exterminating the Jewish people? You know, why should Satan's um, uh, project that he develops through these three streams culminate in the, in the extermination of the Jewish people. And I'll argue it's because Satan knows that the second coming can't come about without a conversion of the Jewish people and that the Holocaust could, could logically be seen as an attempt by Satan to abort the second coming through the extermination of the Jewish people or failing that through, um, uh, through uh, stopping their conversion. 
and has had a huge, it did not succeed in exterminating the Jewish people, although it did exterminate two-thirds of the Jews in Europe. Um, but it did have a tremendous effect on stopping the conversion of the Jewish people, both from the Jews' standpoint of uh, this chip on their shoulder, which I talked about yesterday, and also from the standpoint of the Christian churches, and especially the Catholic Church, which has backed off of the conversion of the Jews, evangelizing the Jews, since World War II as an indirect effect of this, right? You, you know that because you know, it's become so politically incorrect and so forth. Before World War II, there were at least five or six religious organizations. There were, there were religious communities founded with the mission of praying for the conversion of the Jews. There were sodalities founded for the purpose of praying for the conversion of the Jews. Um, and none of them have um, uh, maintained their original charism in the face of this backing off of evangelization of the Jews which followed World War II. And, and uh, you know, I gave my witness testimony yesterday basically to illustrate that um, it's not oppressing the Jews to bring them to their own Messiah, you know, to bring them to Jesus. It's the only way anyone can be happy. That's true of everyone. If it were true, more true of one people than another people, it would be more true of the Jews because that's what they were, right? That's where I started this talk. They were the people chosen from all the people on the earth to pray for the coming of the Messiah, to yearn for the coming of the Messiah, to work for the coming of the Messiah for 2,000 years. So if there is a characteristic Jewish spiritual nature, it must be a particular hunger and thirst for the Messiah, which is Jesus. And the only way they are going to come to Jesus and know the, the joy and the fulfillment that they brought to the rest of you guys, to the Gentiles, is through your prayers and through your sharing the faith. Now, let me um, wrap up um, with um, Romans 11. I, I promise that when I finish, you'll actually see that everything was part of a, a single picture, but I know that a, along the way it looks like the chapters are a little bit disjoint. But Romans 11, that's St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, is the mother load of church teaching about the mysterious interplay between Jew and Gentile in this period between the first and second coming. So let me um, begin to close by... Um, by, um, by, by reading through Romans 11, uh, beginning at the beginning, I ask then, this is St. Paul speaking, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What then? Israel obtained what it's, oh, excuse me. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Let me go back over that. Do you see this is very mysterious? Paul starts out by saying that the, the election of the Jews continues, that God has not rejected the Jewish people despite their rejection of Christ. But Israel failed to obtain what it sought. Israel failed to recognize the Messiah. Um, why was this, St. Paul says, it wasn't just because of their stubbornness and hard-heartedness and so forth, but, quote, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. So that somehow the, the failure of the Jews to recognize Christ was in itself a mysterious aspect, element of divine providence. And St. Paul goes on to talk about why God might have done this. He continues saying, so I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, but through their trespass, 
salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Okay, so St. Paul is saying their rejection meant the reconciliation of the world. Their trespass, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What's he talking about here? I think he's talking about what I mentioned earlier in this talk about the way that the first church council had to be called because the first crisis in the church was, is the church only for Jews or is it also for Gentiles? Now, that crisis, which was very apparent in the first couple of decades, went away pretty quickly, and it went away when the church became overwhelmingly Gentile, right? Pretty soon, within a generation after Jesus, it was obvious that the church was at least as much for Gentiles as for Jews because it was composed of 90% Gentiles. But imagine if all of the Jews in the world had followed Jesus and become the early church, and, you know, five million of the first six million Christians had been Jews, it certainly would have looked much more like a sect of Judaism and as something that belonged first and foremost to the Jews. That danger was avoided precisely by the Jews' failure to enter the church. Through their rejection, reconciliation has come to the world. In other words, through the Jews' rejection of Christ, the Gentile world, the entire world of non-Jews was reconciled to God through Christianity. Through their trespass, salvation came to the Gentiles. Their trespass was necessary to open the floodgates of the church to the non-Jewish world because it began looking, you know, it began when Christianity began, when the church began, it began looking like it was a sect of Judaism. Does that make sense? Good. Um, so um, then but Paul says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And when he says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, I think he's referring to the doctrine, actually the dogma of the great apostasy, the falling away from the faith, which will come to, you know, shortly preceding the second coming. And that falling away from the faith was already uh, compared to being dead by Jesus himself, because he referred to it when he said, um, oh, uh, if, um, I'm sorry, I don't have the quote here. But when he said, if, if men do this when the wood is green, what will they be like when the wood is dry? I think that's a reference to this great apostasy, to this, this um, you know, falling away from the faith to precede the second coming. And when St. Paul says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I think what he's saying is that the entry of the Jews into the church will be a, a counteracting force against the force of the great apostasy, the dying away of the faith of the parts of the world which have been historically Christian, which I would argue we're probably seeing today. As a matter of fact, um, I'm leaving this between the lines, but one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I'm actually arguing that this is the times we're in. We're in the times of the great apostasy. We're in the times of the coming of the Antichrist. Um, and uh, the gospel has been spread to the four corners of the earth, especially through technology and EWTN and radio and television and so forth. And I think we're in the time of the conversion of the Jews, which is why I'm doing all of this. But anyway, back to St. Paul. Uh, going back to Romans 11, St. Paul then goes into his picture, his image of the olive tree, which is his overarching image of the interplay between Jew and Gentile in between the first and second coming. Uh, so he compares salvation to an olive tree, and he says the following. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. 
If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true, but even the others, if they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So you see this picture uh, St. Paul is painting? Salvation is an olive tree. That olive tree, the roots are in Judaism. The original branches of that cultivated olive tree were the Jews. Some of those branches were broken off. That's the Jews who failed to follow Christ. But they were broken off to make room to graft in wild olive branches. That is the Gentiles who are then grafted onto that tree of salvation, which is the church. If you're one of those grafted in wild olive branches, don't boast over the broken off original olive branches, if you do boast, remember that God has the power to graft them in again also, and when he does, they'll be even better suited to the tree because they were originally a part of it. So that is his picture of Jew and Gentile uh, in this period between first and second coming. The, um, and then he um, wraps up um, uh, saying, um, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren, a hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. And this is one of the key scripture verses that lies behind that paragraph 674 of the Catechism about the conversion of the Jews to precede the second coming. Um, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel. That's the veil in front of their eyes that they don't recognize Christ until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and then all Israel will be saved. So what's this business about the full number of the Gentiles coming in? It is, it is uh, the period just before the second coming when the gospel has been spread throughout the world, when essentially the full number of the Gentiles has come in, then it will be the time to open the floodgates, lift the veil from the eyes of the Jews, and the Jews too will enter the church, and then the church composed of Jew and Gentile will be ready for the second coming. Now, we know a little bit more about the full number of the Gentiles coming in from the words of Jesus himself. It's a prophecy that Jesus himself makes in Luke chapter 23, shortly before the fashion. Uh, now I'm reading from, excuse me, Luke 21. I'm reading from Luke 21, verses 24 to 27. Uh, the Jews will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth distress of nations and perplexity, at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory." So Jesus is laying out a timeline here, and he's making a prophecy. He's saying Jerusalem will fall by the edge of the sword, literally fulfilled in 70 A.D., right? Jerusalem fell by the edge of the sword. The Jews were literally led captive among all nations. They were taken into, slaves by the, into slavery by the Romans and dispersed throughout the Roman world. And Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles, in other words, held in Gentile hands, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Jerusalem was held in Gentile hands continuously from 70 A.D. until 1967 A.D., when for the first time in almost 2,000 years, the old city of Jerusalem returned to Jewish hands. And then Jesus immediately goes into a description of the second coming, right? Signs and sun and moon and stars and powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So I think one can make a coherent argument here that the timeline that Jesus is laying out suggests 
that we're in the period when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled and we're in the period to precede the second coming. And the, uh, the period, um, basically the period uh, when it's appropriate to bring about the conversion of the Jews. Um, I'll, let me jump back now to, to Romans 11 with just the last paragraph of Romans 11 where St. Paul talks about why God did this in salvation history. So um, I'll just start uh, over again with that line from uh, verse 25 and continue. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and then all Israel will be saved. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Okay? So this is the reason, one reason why God did this. It's a very beautiful story. What, what Paul is saying here is that just as you were once disobedient to God, that's the Gentiles who are out of communion with God, but have received mercy because of the disobedience of the Jews. In other words, have been brought into communion with God because of the Jews' failure to follow Jesus. So now the Jews are, contem- are condemned, so to speak, to this period of disobedience so that when they do come into the church, it'll be obvious that it is a sovereign act of the mercy of God. In other words, the Jews started out uh, being obedient to God. So if they went from there into the church, they would not have recognized it as a sovereign act of the mercy of God. They would have thought it was because they were pretty special and they deserved it and they earned it and so forth. By passing through this period of disobedience, when God shows mercy to the Jews, it will be obvious to them, too, that is a sovereign act of the mercy of God and nothing that they could have deserved. The Gentiles had started out in that state so that when they entered the church, it was from the beginning obvious that it was a sovereign act of the mercy of God. But the Jews had a pass through a period of disobedience so that when they entered the church, it would be obvious to them also that it was a sovereign act of the mercy of God. Make sense? I hope. Um, so, and then, and then uh, Paul uh, closes by saying, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. So um, let me actually close on time. Um, let me make one little uh, non-commercial commercial announcement, which is I'm doing all of this mostly to generate um, interest and prayer for the conversion of the Jews uh, for a couple of reasons. One is out of my, you know, I'm Jewish, you know, and I still have some, you know, special love for the Jewish people and feeling of loyalty to them. I feel more Jewish than I ever did, you know, before I entered the Catholic Church. And I know that the greatest gift one can give anyone is, is bringing them bring them to the church and bring them I mean I'm not only talking about in this life but you know then there's a whole other issue of after death you know what a better state everyone is in if they know the truths of the Catholic Church and have had the sacraments but even in this period between birth and death it's impossible to be happy without Christianity and as far as I'm concerned it's impossible to be happy without the infusion of a direct divine Christianity one gets through the uh, sacraments of the Catholic Church so it's simple charity you know, to want to um, generate prayer for the conversion of the Jews. The other reason is I, I really I would like to see the second coming happen soon. 
And so that's another kind of selfish reason to want to bring about the conversion of the Jews or prayer for the conversion of the Jews because it can't happen. Now, the sense that I have of um, being more Jewish than ever being in the Catholic Church, the sense that I have that there's no way to be happy without uh, being Catholic isn't just mine. It's shared by every other Jew I know in the Catholic Church. It's shared. Uh, my second book is this Honey from the Rock, 16 Jews Find the Sweetness of Christ. It is uh, 16 Jewish Catholic witness testimonies, including mine, including Rosalind Moss, who you might know from EWTN, Mother Miriam now, and so forth. And um, let me just read a short quote from one of the Jewish converts in there, Charlie Rich, who was a Hasidic Jew. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll kind of close with this quote and a prayer for the conversion of the Jews. And the prayer for the conversion of the Jews is on the back of this prayer card. It's, it's in Edestein, is on the front. But uh, I'll close with a prayer from the back of this prayer card, and you're welcome to stop by the table and pick up one of the prayer cards. Uh, but let me, before reading the prayer, read some words of Charlie Rich, which kind of summarize my attitudes too. I have, since my baptism and first communion, acquired a happiness which I would not exchange for anything in the world. It has given me a peace of mind and a calmness of outlook which I did not think was possible on this earth. It would have been in vain to have been born had God not been good enough to extend me the grace to be a member of the mystical body of Christ that the Church of Rome is. Without the life Christ is, there is no life at all. It is for heaven we have been made and for no other earthly good thing. I became a Catholic so that I may in that way be happy, not just for a few years, but forever and ever. I became a Catholic that I may in that way get the grace to one day participate in the joys of the angels and saints in the life to come. It is to that life the grace of being a Catholic is meant to lead. It is meant to lead to a happiness we cannot now imagine or conceive. Can the mercy of God be made more manifest than in the grace extended to us to be members of the only true church? It is being a Catholic that matters and not any other thing the world has to offer, however good and beautiful it may be. The Church of Rome gives us God himself. It does so in all his fullness. A greater gift than God is a human being cannot help to receive. We receive the gift God himself is when we receive Holy Communion. To become more intimately united with God than the Church enables us to be by means of the Holy Sacraments, we must take leave of this life. Amen. Right? That's really Catholicism 101. So let me close with a, a thank you for, with a prayer for the conversion of the Jews. Um, this is a completely kosher prayer. It was a postulatum at the First Vatican Council, which was in the 1860s. Postulatum is a, a Latin for petition. It was uh, heartily endorsed by the Pope of the Council, uh, Pope Pius IX. It was signed by all of the, uh, virtually all of the church, uh, the council fathers, and it is an invitation on the part of the church to the Jews to enter the church. Because the church, as I said before, World War II, was not shy about yearning to see, think of how much Jesus is yearning to see his own people follow, become followers of his, right? Just before the crucifixion, right, uh, he, when he wept over Jerusalem, why did he weep? He wept, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have me. You know, think of, you know, doing, G I don't know how to put it, but think of what a good deed it is to Jesus to pray for the conversion of the Jews, how heartwarming it is to Jesus for him to see his own people finally follow him. But anyway, the prayer from the First Vatican Council. The undersigned fathers of the council humbly yet urgently pray 
that the Holy Ecumenical Council of the Vatican come to the aid of the unfortunate nation of Israel with an entirely paternal invitation, that finally exhausted by a weight no less futile than long, the Israelites hastened to recognize the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, truly promised to Abraham and announced by Moses, thus completing and crowning, not changing, the Mosaic religion. The undersigned fathers have the very firm confidence that the Holy Council will have compassion on the Israelites because they are always very dear to God on account of their fathers and because it is from them that the Christ is born according to the flesh. Would that they then speedily acclaim the Christ, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Would that they hurl themselves into the arms of the Immaculate Virgin Mary, even now their sister according to the flesh, who wishes likewise to be their mother according to grace, as she is ours. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Salvation is from the Jews on Radio Maria with me, Roy Shoman. You just heard a recording of a conference I gave recently in Colorado Springs, Colorado, speaking about the role of Judaism in salvation history. That's all we have time for today. I hope you join me again next week on Salvation is from the Jews. Bye for now. You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Salvation is from the Jews with Roy Showman.